There is a principle, which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Good morning. My name is Hugh. I'm an alcoholic. I like to start off these little sermons with that quotation out of the big book, out of a spiritual experience for a couple of reasons. I have become convinced over these years that it is that contempt prior to investigation that causes us to give out a damn sight more 30-day chips in Alcoholics Anonymous than we do one-year birthday cakes. And I have also heard a lot of people tell me that they have trouble living by principles. I don't think living by principles is the problem. I think it's the principles we live by that's the problem. What is so difficult? about living by principles. What's so hard about honesty, open-minded, willingness? What's so difficult? What's so hard about duty, responsibility, and obligation? What is so hideous about kindness, courtesy, and consideration? Why are these so objectionable to so many? I don't know. I have no idea. Perhaps you can enlighten me. I uh, want to take a moment or two to say some things before I start talking this morning. One of the things I would like to do, of course, is to thank the committee for inviting Bev and I here. We have had one hell of an enjoyable weekend. The South may not be the South anymore, but you have not forgotten what hospitality is, and I have never, ever been treated so well by so many. You have been extremely kind. And I will appreciate that as we go away today. I, I don't like being the last speaker necessarily. It has certain advantages, but it means that it's going to end. But like the phoenix bird, it will rise again out of its own ashes to fly next year. And about this time next year, I'll be remembering you. And it really isn't important whether you remember me. I'll remember you. I feel somewhat like Elizabeth Taylor's eighth husband. I know exactly what's expected of me. I am just not sure that I can live up to past performances. <laughs> I would uh, also like to take a moment to say something to you new people who are in here. Those of you who last night identified yourself and those you didn't. And tell you, if no one has, that you're a part of a fellowship that has astounded science for a great many years. This is the largest group of people anywhere in the world who have found a way to go from adolescence to senility without ever bothering to pass through maturity. <laughs> so welcome. And if you're having a little trouble getting rid of the alcohol and quitting drinking, remember one thing, that quitting drinking is like making love to a gorilla, and you are not through until the gorilla is through. <laughs> and if you feel that your life has served no useful purpose, perhaps you're mistaken about that. It's just that you don't understand the use that God has used you for for so long. And it reminds me of a story I heard once, and I think explains it extremely well. It's about a, a very well-known evangelist who died and went to heaven, and he was sitting in the outer office of St. Peter waiting for his interview. And while he was waiting, a well-known Catholic priest come in, and the girl behind the desk said, Go right in, Father. He's waiting for you. And the evangelist could understand this because this priest was well-known and well-loved. And a few moments later, a well-known rabbi come in, and the 
girl behind the desk says, go right in, he's waiting for you. And he could understand also why this rabbi got in front of him. He was well-known and well up. And a few moments later, a little old lady come in, and a girl behind the desk jumped up, ran over, threw her arms around her, and hugged her, and she said, Mary, Mary, we're so glad you're here. He's been waiting for you. Go right in. This bothered the evangelist. He went over to the girl. He said, I can understand. Why the priest got in in front of me, he was well-known and well-loved, and so was the rabbi. I can understand that. But he said, would you mind explaining to me why that little old lady got in in front of me? She said, well, it's really very simple. She said when that little old lady was only 17 years old, her father gave her a brand new red convertible for her birthday. And in the two years that she drove that car on the streets of Los Angeles, she put the fear of God in the hearts of more people than you did in 40 years of peach and hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> so perhaps you just don't recognize what your life has been, but every life serves a purpose, even though we may not understand fully what that purpose is. You may wonder why there are so many Californians on the agenda for this weekend, and there's a very simple answer to that. You have a giant metropolitan area around here somewhere that I haven't yet been able to find. It's called Olive Branch, Mississippi. <laughs> there is a kindly old southern gentleman who comes out our way to give us the word of God. And I would like to tell each and every one of you that he claims that Memphis is a suburb of that city, and I have not yet been able to find it or him. <laughs> you keep sending to us, and we'll keep sending us to you. We do not get resentments in California. We get even. I'm sorry that Franklin's out of town this weekend. I was looking forward to seeing him, but I understand he's going to be back out our way before long, and we will see him. And Bev and I had the pleasure one year of being his host at the Valley Convention, and it was very enjoyable. And he is very typical of most of you, and I hope you don't take that as an insult. I don't really mean it that way. I love him very much. Now, what I talk about is not what happened to me when I was drinking. And I got three good reasons for not talking about what it was like when I was drinking. I don't like the LAPD version of the way I drank. I am not overly fond of my first wife's version of the way I drank, and I don't remember how I drank. <laughs> and if you drank like me, you don't remember how you drank either. And I'm extremely fascinated by people who can get up podiums like this and talk to people like you and go by a blow-by-blow blow description of how they drank. And if I'd have known that it was going to be a mark of distinction in my declining years, I probably would have kept notes or hired a secretary or something, but I didn't, so I didn't, so I remember what it was like. And I'm extremely fascinated with the record-keeping that you people have, and you can recite to the exact moment when you walk into this way of life. I find that fascinating. I don't remember what I got to do. Sometime around 28th of June, 1960, I ended up in the North Hollywood Clubhouse of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I got there, I thought it was a home for out-of-work actors, and I have since found out I was right. It is a home for out-of-work actors. And they were using a lot of words and expressions, things that I did not like. Now, some of the things I didn't mind. I heard them say one day to turn your will and your wife over to the care of God, and that sounded okay to me. Another guy said a little while later, he said, we sought through prayer and medication, and that sounded okay. But you were using words like exactly, precisely, absolutely, that leaves no room at all for the imagination of an alcoholic to wander around in. I didn't like that. I had a bunch of bad experiences when I got there. Didn't like none of you. Some of you didn't even like me, that I couldn't understand, but 
I sure as hell didn't like you, and you were using things that I didn't like. I've heard a lot of people say it, and so have you. They don't get emotionally involved in your first year. Bullshit. I think you should go out and get emotionally involved as soon as you can find someone sick enough to have something to do with you. And I say this for a very important reason, because I am convinced that it will prove to you beyond the shadow of a doubt, if you're depending on your emotional condition for your sobriety, you're going to be in for a hell of a lot of drinking. And I don't believe you should blow any time on this program if you can help it, so get involved right away. <laughs> and I heard a lot of people saying around the North Hollywood clubhouse, especially a woman and a man, and went around preaching all the time, they said, men with the men, women with the women. I'm going to tell you something. When you're in either Hollywood or North Hollywood, California, you hear people saying men with men, women with women, you're not exactly sure what the hell they mean by that. <laughs> and I thought I'd got myself into a bunch of them this time, haven't I? Along about that time, I got myself what you people today laughingly call a sponsor. Back then, we call them adversaries. And I picked one of them. I don't know if I picked him or he picked me, but whatever it was, we never did quite get even with one another, although he always had the slight advantage for some reason or other. might have been because he was sober 12 years when I got here. I don't really know. But he was cruel, unkind, and unthinking. And he had absolutely no mercy on my tender sensitivity. He treated me like dirt. I learned to like him. I learned to love him. Then I wasted a hell of a lot of years trying to get even with him. Never made it. And it started with this thing right here, this thing that I'm going to talk about this morning, this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Not this inventory. Those you cannot make take an inventory and those you cannot keep from taking an inventory. I come from the first kind. I'd ask a guy once in AS, when do you take the fifth step? He said, when the statute of limitations run out. <laughs> I figured that was pretty good advice. You don't take a fourth, you don't take a fifth, right? So I went along for a good long time, not taking a fourth step. One day this adversary of mine caught me and he said, Kid, you've been leaving freeloading off this long enough time you took an inventory. What the hell? I took an inventory. Wrote it all out in longhand. Seen the syntax was right. Punctuated it properly. Edited it somewhat for readability. Put a little addendum with this resentment list they got in this chapter. Put a loose leaf notebook handed to him. He said, What's this movie script? I said, no, sir, that's my inventory. He thumbed through it. He said, it is not your inventory. He said, I'm an actor. I know a script when I see one. This one won't play. And he handed it back to me. I said, that is not a movie script. That is my inventory. He said, it is not your inventory. He said, what you have done, my young friend, is itemize your behavioral patterns. And I have no doubt you've edited it so damn well that neither you nor I will ever know how you were ever wrong about anything. With that, he reached in his coat pocket, took out a small notebook to our one sheet that said, take your inventory on this. I said, I can't. He said, you can't. I said, I can't. Oh, it's too small. He said, it is not. I said, it is. He said, it is not. My young friend, tell me something. Did you ever knowingly take anything that did not belong to you? I said, of course I have. You know that? He said, right down feet. He said, have you ever told a little story you knew did not match the facts in the case? I said, of course I have. You know that too. He said, right down liar. I don't know about you, but I didn't like the way this damn inventory was starting to turn out. <laughs> He said, you ever played around with a girl when you was married to somebody else? I said, of course I have. You know that, too. He said, then ride down cheap. Started to walk away. He said, oh, incidentally, at the top of the page, he said, I told you I was a Baptist. He said, what's the difference? 
You know, that one statement opened my eyes to something that I had totally overlooked for many, many years. Do you know that quite often a deep-seated religious conviction is a tremendous obstacle to a spiritual concept? And how many times have you heard people say, if you ain't a good Baptist, you ain't good for nothing. If you're not a good Catholic, what good are you? And once again, one more time, our Father does not exist. Our Father. Alcoholics Anonymous says, God, as you understand God, your understanding of God. Not your creation of God, but your understanding of God. You'll find nothing here that will interfere with it. Absolutely nothing. You can believe or not believe. If you're like me, you will do what step two says, and you will come to believe. Even though you may have a deep-seated religious conviction, you may find you have a tremendous obstacle to spiritual conscience. Says so in a book, too. It's not like that. I ain't going to tell you where it is. Read your own damn book. Now, by taking an inventory in this manner, I discovered something that bothered me. Being a thief didn't bother me. And that bothered me. And I went up to him one day and I said, you know, being a thief don't bother me. He said, why should it? We in Alcoholics Anonymous are not moralists. It's not up to us to see that everyone in the world fits the patterns of an ever-changing society, for God's sake. He said, what we're trying to do is find out what our moral obstacles are to a spiritual concept. But he said, you told me once that lying did bother you. I said, it does. He said, I was going to steal without lying. And he hadn't for a little while. But I thought about it, and I found a way. Almost everything that I have told you so far here this morning, I have stolen from something or someone and weaved it together in the form of a story that I hope will help someone else better understand what this way of life is all about. And then I discovered something. Do you know that the, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to get rid of character traits. Character traits are God-given. You cannot get rid of a character trait. You can misuse it, but you cannot get rid of it. God gave it to you. He meant for you to use it. And do you know that the character traits of a pathological liar and a novelist are identically the same thing? Just the way they use them. Great literature, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights were written by the Bronte sisters, but you know they wrote under the name of Bell. And some of the greatest of all American literature was written by Mark Twain. The jumping frog of Calaveras County, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. But you know his real name was Samuel Clemens? With these people, these were nom de plume, pen names. With me, aliases. But aren't they remarkably similar? Remarkably similar. You see, when you don't use a character trait selfishly, but for the benefit of others, and I didn't say economically now. If you have a trait that's marketable, for God's sake, use it. I didn't say that. But don't use it selfishly. They did not do these things for selfish reasons. And today, long after they are gone, their books remain for our enjoyment. They have given to those yet unborn and passed their legacy on to those of us who can enjoy it, as we are asked to do also in Alcoholics Anonymous, to pass this legacy on. Pass it on. Always. Pass it on. There is another word in there that will stumble some people. It's called resentment. You know what a resentment is? Fundamentally, a resentment is the courage of a coward. And you get a resentment because someone done, or you think someone done, something that's detrimental to you, and you do absolutely nothing but think about it. The more you think, the worse it gets. And it isn't long before you're filled with a burning rage ready to kill that somebody's out there enjoying life. 
Resentments real or imagined have the power to actually kill. Let me tell you something. When I was going to school, I read Shakespeare. Loved it, some of it anyway. And Julius Caesar, there is something I hope I never forget. Caesar is explaining something that he intends to do. And a friend says, beware, Caesar. Beware. And he says, a coward dies many times before his death. The valiant never taste of death but once. How many times do you want to die? Is once enough? Or do you want to do it over and over? Did you ever read that serenity prayer? See, I jumped over step three for a reason, so I go back to it. You know what that serenity prayer says? It says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. It doesn't say one word about it. Approval, does it? You see, as an egoist, if I couldn't approve of it, I couldn't accept it. I'll tell you, one thing, there's a hell of a lot of things in AA and out of AA I don't approve of. Especially you people drive them little Japanese beer cans on the freeway when I'm in a hurry. But that isn't what that prayer says, is it? You know what the next line says? The courage to change the things we can. The wisdom knows the difference. I think it should say in a sponsor that knows the difference, but it doesn't make any difference. It works either way. Doesn't it? When you come into Alcoholics Anonymous and obtain and maintain your sobriety over a period of years, you will become a leader, whether you want to or not. Your years will make you that. It will give you that. Step three will determine who leads you. And how well you have worked that into your life now will show whether you are a shepherd or a Judas goat. Whether you lead people to the slaughter or whether you lead them out of the bewilderment of their own mind will depend on how well you have worked step three into your life. And there's an awful lot of confusion about that step in this way of life. We turned our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God. You know how many people I've had tell me, I have turned my will and my life over to the care of God now and he's working for me. <laughs> oh my God. Let me tell you something. I went to seminary for a good long time, long enough to have entered a ministry if I'd have so chosen. And there is a record of God having gotten a job working for six days, creating the heavens and the earth, took a day off, and there is no record that he ever went to work again, ever, anywhere for anyone. When you turn your will and your life over to the care of God, it's like turning your will and your life over to the care of a woman. You go after her. You devote your life to her. You devote your pursuits to her on her behalf. And that's exactly what A.A. is saying. When you turn your will and your life over to the care of God, as you understand God, you will do God's work. He won't do yours. And if you don't believe that works tomorrow morning, when you go to work, you tell the boss, from now on, you're working for me, and watch what happens to your job. I'll guarantee you what will happen to your job. You'll be out of a job. But a more remarkable thing does happen. When you start doing God's work, as you believe God would have you do his work, things begin to change. And you find that one day the worst you can do is break even, where before that was the best you could have possibly hoped for. And things begin to happen now that never happened before. And I didn't say calamities don't hit, they do. Tragedy hits all the time. We bury friends. We go out and pick up drunks who we've known for a long time, so we do a lot of things. Tragedy hits, of course. But we have the power now to do those things. Somehow or another it's developed within us. That power that we never had before to do these noble things now has been given to us or revealed to us or exposed to us or whatever else you want to say. It is now there anyway. The next time you find out you got bad breaks, don't cuss. It's just God's way of saying, I'm going to save your life. I need you. And don't call things coincidence because coincidence is only when God chooses to remain anonymous. No other reason. Do God's work. And you'll find that in this book, incidentally. You're going to do God's work now. He's not going to do yours, but he will do for you what you could not have done for yourself.
something happened. The next chapter in this book, entitled Into Action. It is not entitled Into Thinking, unfortunately. But every step, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, are all itemized and italicized in that one chapter. And it is absolute proof, I believe, that we can live ourselves into good thinking where we could never have thought ourselves into good living, into action. And action is now the magic word for all of us, into action. They close that chapter by saying we will now devote the next chapter entirely to the 12-step working with others. And they do, and fundamentally, that seems to have been the basic text to me. I didn't read these other chapters for a long time. At the time in my life I'm talking about, I did not have a wife and I did not even want a wife. So I never read the chapter to the wife. And I know some of you young fellows out there feel the same way. You don't have a wife and you don't want one. i got news for you. You are probably going to get a wife whether you want one or not. So I'd advise you to read a chapter to the wives. And if I had not have read that chapter, there are four types of alcoholics I might not have known anything about. There are five types in the doctor's opinion and one more type in the basic text, and that is ten types of alcoholics that were extremely well known when this book was published in 1939. And God only knows how many types of alcoholics there are today. And if that's not enough to get you over your bigotry that says, you didn't drink like I drank, you're not an alcoholic, I don't know what would be. What about family afterwards? Don't have a family, you don't even want one of those either? i got news for you, fellas. You're not going to find a 40-year-old virgin orphan in AA, or Al-Anon either for that matter. So you'll probably get a family whether you want one or not. Now, i got three daughters. Beverly's got one that's four daughters. I'll tell you all right now, I'd rather raise saber-toothed tigers and daughters. But we got four of them. And we get along remarkably well. We're separated by great distances, and this helps immeasurably. So we got four of them. There's something else I wouldn't have known if I had not read that chapter. Do you know it's okay to live in a good home, drive a good car, have money in a bank, wear decent clothes? You don't have to be a bum anymore if you don't want to. It says the material is all right, as long as it always follows the spiritual, but never proceeds it. First things first. What about the employer? I don't know about, yeah, hell, I know about you. Money has never been an incentive for me to work. Poverty is an incentive for me to work. Money's not. But if I had not have read that chapter, I might not have ever known what the five greatest enemies of the alcoholic are. You know what they are? Resentment. Jealousy. Envy, frustration, and the fourth most common used word in 18 different languages, fear, fear. Do you know how Alcoholics Anonymous gets rid of fear? Well, it really doesn't get rid of fear. What it does get rid of the causes of fear. And probably the most common cause of fear in the human race is called embarrassment. And you will not take part in your own recovery because you're so concerned that you're going to embarrass yourself. You will. I'm going to tell you right now, you'll embarrass yourself. I said once in a meeting many years ago, I've done everything there is to do except make love to another man. Another guy in the meeting said, if you've had as many blackouts as you say you had, how do you know you didn't? <laughs> oh, you'll embarrass yourself. But you see, by taking part in your own recovery, you get over it. And it no longer causes fear. What about retribution? <laughs> retribution. Uh, there is a beautiful word, retribution. You know, most of us are so scared to death that somebody's going to do to us what we've already done to somebody else. Retribution. I used to think you people who wouldn't say the Lord's Prayer when a meeting was over with nothing but your damned atheists. I've come to respect you. You're smarter than I was. There is one part of that Lord's Prayer that most of us never bother with that is tremendously important. 
It says, Lord, treat me just like I'm going to treat old Joe when I get my damn hands on him. Forgive us our trespass as we forgive those who trespass against us. And there was the key and the secret to something that I had overlooked for years. You know, when I forgive those who have hurt me, I am forgiven. They ain't. If you've got a personality like mine, you'll enjoy the hell out of that. You'll know that you're off the hook, but they're not. When you forgive those who have harmed you, God says you are now forgiven. I don't have the power to forgive anyone, anything, not even myself. God does. And when I show my good intentions of forgiving all of those who have harmed me, God says, okay, kid, you're worthy now. I forgive And all the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. Must have had a hell of a ball up there in our case, didn't it? Fear. What about loneliness? Loneliness. Do you know that one thing there, loneliness, has caused most of you women more trouble than any other single thing you were just alone? Lonely. Horrible loneliness. I'm sorry that men like me took advantage of people like you when you were at your emotional worst. I'm even more sorry, incidentally, that many still are. Loneliness. How does Alcoholics Anonymous overcome this? Let me tell you how to overcome it. You remember the title of this book, Alcoholics Anonymous? Do you know that there are almost 200 different anonymous programs in this world today? Almost 200 different ones, all based on the same concept in this book, all based fundamentally on this book. N-A, G-A, O-A, E-H-A, C-A, so many A's. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. This is A-A. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problems and help others who recover from alcoholism. How does Alcoholics Anonymous possibly work? It's the fellowship, the other half of this damn thing. It's two parts. The fellowship is alcoholic. Here. In NA, it's narcotics addicts. In GA, it's gamblers. In OA, it's overeaters. But here, one drunk can understand another one as no one else can. In other words, you can't lie to another drunk. It's awful hard to lie to a sea captain if you're not a sea captain. Believe me, I'll try. AA works because of the fellowship. And when you get involved in this fellowship, when you become a part of a convention like this, when you become part of a group, when you become a part of general service, when you become a part of central office, intergroup, whatever it is, you find the loneliness begins to dissipate. It goes away. And you will take an immediate dislike to some of the people in your group. You won't like them. Now you'll go back one night, they won't be there, and you'll say, where's Joe? Where's Fred tonight? Have you seen him? And you'll find out now that you're beginning to be concerned of others as much as yourself. And the loneliness disappears. And maybe you'll be as fortunate as I am and get what you deserve as I did some 17 years ago when Bev and I got married. I have heard a lot of people say AA marriages don't work. AA marriages will work better than any other kind of marriage if you are working the AA program into your life. And if you are not, it will not. If you have gotten over your selfishness, if you have gotten over the great eye, the ego, the watachi, and all these other things, your marriage will work. If it is meant to be, it will be. Ours does. Ask her. She's been extremely happy for the last 17 years, she'll tell you. So have I. It works. You see, when you want to get rid of retribution, what you've got to now do is go to all of the people you have harmed 
and say, what can I do to set this right? You have now had that change that's necessary. You're not going back to apologize. You're not going back as a butt boy, a straight goat. You're not going back to take punishment. You have dignity, honor, and integrity now. You go back and say, what can I do to set this right? I screwed up your life. What can I do to set it right? You're not going back there to be beat on, but to set right or wrong. And now it doesn't make any difference what someone else does. Hell, the best thing to do is just get even. And then you begin to understand that other people's opinion of you is none of your business. And I love each and every one of you. And there isn't one damn thing any one of you can do about it. Not one thing. I always thought you controlled my love for you. I didn't know that you didn't. Oh, you might stay away. You might ignore me. You might shun me. You might even talk about me. But you cannot. You cannot stop me from loving you. It's impossible. And I love each and every one of you as much as I love the woman I've been married to for the last 17 years. And if you think that's a puzzle, I'll explain it. You see, I made commitments to Beverly I have not made to you. And I have learned about loyalty and honesty and integrity. And I keep the commitments I have made and I do not make conflicting commitments. And this way of life has showed me how not to make those commitments. Something in fidelity now that wasn't there before is there now. But does that affect love? Of course not. It does not affect love in any way, and you know it, and so do I. How in the world can you love your wife and your children at the same? How can it be the same thing? You do things with your wife. I hope to God you're not doing with your children. But how can it be love then? Because love, because love is something different than most people understand. Most of us base love on three things. Possession. Desire. Or a severe emotional dysfunction. We call it love. Every time we see her, we get all nervous and strained. And we say, this is love. It is simply an emotional dysfunction. It ain't got nothing to do with love. To understand love, you must understand some very simple things to begin with. And I'd like to explain to you what mine is in closing this way, this talk this morning, what love is. If you want to learn to love the most, you must first learn to love the least. And Alcoholics Anonymous gives you that opportunity. And Christ said that, didn't he? He said, when you love these the least of mine, then you love me, but not before. And when you love the least member of this group here this morning, that's when you love the most. Learn to love the most by learning to love the least. And that most love then gives you access to other love. Love. Some years ago at Carville, Louisiana, there was a man who had a lot of money, and he devoted a lot of his money to Carville. And he went down there one day to see what it was like and what these little sisters of charity were doing. And one of them escorted him all through the place, and he seen these nuns binding up these sores and doing it smilingly and wiping away the filth, and the stench was something horrible, and they were all smiling and talking. He couldn't understand this, and when he was leaving that morning, he said, You know, sister, he said, I would not do what you do for one million dollars. And she looked up at him, and she said, John, neither would I. Neither would I. We do for love what we would not consider doing for money, and that makes it love, doesn't it? Love. The simplest of all human things, and I don't believe that love is an emotion. I want to straighten that one out right now. I believe that love is an action. Love and honesty have that in common. They are both actions. And it is the action you take on behalf of others, those you may never know. When you have no axe to grind, when you have no points to make, when there is nothing seemingly in it for you, and yet you reap the reward. Love. Love is an action. It is not an emotion. And for any action to be important, it has to have some qualities. I'll tell you about four of them that I have found in love. The first quality I found was transparency. 
to become transparent, to let other people see in so you can see out. And for the first time in my life, those windows, mirrors had started to become windows. And I used to tell Beth, what you see is what you get. If you don't like it, then we can remain friends and not interfere with one another. But if you do, for God's sakes, don't try to change it. Now, that has had no effect on her in the last 17 years. But it has had no effect on me either. What you see is what you get. How many times have we promised women something we could never give them? Maybe a home in the hills or some great and wonderful thing, and we had not even enough money to buy them a cup of coffee when the meeting was over. And we had to be opaque and conceal ourselves from others. You know, I heard a song once that says that better, I guess, than anything else called Rose Garden. I used to play that over and over and over for Beth because there's one thing in it I really like, one phrase that is extremely important. It says, if that's what it takes to hold you, I'd just as soon let you go. I'd just as soon let you go. What you see is what you get. And if I am living my life wide open as A.A. has told me to do by telling all of my story to someone, every bit of it, what have I got to conceal? If God knows and he knows and I know, what the hell's the secret now? What you see is what you get. And it has worked extremely well. The next one is a partner. I learned this from Gabron and Alanon. Alanon says, I want to release you with love. I'm just not going to let you close enough to hit me anymore. Gabron said, let there be a partner in our together. Let us support equally this weight of life. Each of us strong in our own way. A partner. How many times have we had to get away from someone because they held on so tight we couldn't breathe? Someone we really liked. How many times have we got away from our parents or our children had to get away from us because they were telling us or we were telling them, I know what's best for you. You ain't going to be this, you're going to be that. We held on so tight they could not grow spiritually. If you're ever in California, go up into the redwoods, up on the coast especially, and you'll see that some of these trees grow oh, four or five hundred feet high. There's one up in the mountains there in Yosemite, or Sequoia, I guess it is, that was, oh my God, 1,500 years old when Christ was born. Those trees seemingly lived forever, and yet underneath very little growth, the sunlight of the Spirit can't come through, and there is no growth. No underbrush, very little. You cannot grow spiritually in the shadow of your lover, your wife, your husband, your friends. You cannot grow spiritually except in the light of God. You can't grow spiritually in the shadow of your sponsor, for Christ's sake. Not even there. You might ask yourself, well, then what good is a sponsor? A sponsor is someone who is still sick enough to listen to you and keep you here till a miracle happens. That's what a sponsor is. Monster can do no merit. You grow spiritually only in the light of God. Freedom. I never associated freedom with love. Never. I mean, to me, a kiss was a contract. I never saw. I didn't know what freedom was. I thought freedom was doing what you want to do when you want to do it. And then I made an important discovery from a song I heard. It said that kind of freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom is not doing what you want to do when you want to do it. Freedom is the power to do what you have to do when it needs to be done. And now you are free from the bondage of self, perhaps for the first time in your life. And that is the only bondage any alcoholic was ever under anyway, the bondage of self. And you are free because 
freedom is the awesome power to do what you have to do when it needs to be done. Now you go to work, pay your bills, fill your car full of gas and the other things that are necessary in life. Now it seems to have straightened out. And yet there's one more quality. One quality that I am convinced as others before me have been that if you had all of the alcoholics in the world in one room, you'd have less than 2% of the world's patience. Patience. You know what patience is? You know how important it is? Take. Right after Bev and I first got married, there was one of her, well, she calls them babies. I got another word for them. But anyway, they, she called up this one day and she said, is Beverly there? I said, no, she's not here right now. She said, oh my God, I got to talk to somebody, even if it's you. <laughs> now, she's still alive. That's because I have patience. Patience. Without patience, how could you possibly, as a sponsor, sit there for three and four years and listen to this poor moronic idiot run off at the mouth? How could you possibly have him go to some strange meeting somewhere and come back and tell you about this great and wonderful person he heard talk and repeat to you exactly what you have been telling him for the last... You'd kill him. Without patience, you would have no choice. Without patience, we would interfere in the lives of others. I have a youngest daughter who still believes in better living through chemistry. Without patience, I would tell her how to stay sober and how to get away from these drugs and how to live and how to control her life and what to do with her children and everything else. And I would drive a wedge between she and I and between you and her. And she would have no place to go. And I have said nothing. With God's help, I will say nothing. Patience is the power, power once again, to do nothing when there is nothing you can do. An awesome, tremendous power. Three of the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous deal with power, don't they? Three of them deal with it. The first, the second, and the eleventh. And God at the same time. You cannot develop patience. God gives it to you when you are worth it. And a lot of people say, oh, I have a lot of trouble with step ten. There you go. Why do you have so much trouble with step ten? You really don't realize what step ten is telling you? It says, go to somebody and tell them you were wrong about yesterday. Can't be wrong about tomorrow. It ain't here. Isn't that just a way of saying I'm wiser today than I was yesterday? I know more today than I did yesterday. What seems so right now shows it's wrong, and I am sorry for what I have said or done. And if they ridicule you, what difference does it make? You are wiser now than you were yesterday, and that is the only thing you can hope for from step ten, and that's what it gives you. What about step eleven? That's when you get the job, God, that you applied for in step three. God gives it to you now. You will now be praying only for the knowledge of God's will for you and the power to carry that out, and you will get it. Whatever it is he wants you to do, you'll have the power to do. You won't have any more emotional strength than you had 25 years ago. I don't. Spiritual strength. I hear a lot of people talking about growth in age. They're going to grow. They're going to ask the doctor, ask Paul for God's sake. The prime purpose of a cancer cell is growth. Willing to grow along spiritual lines. Spiritual lines. Love. Fear. It's time for me to get off here. And so, going, I want to tell you about step 12. Remember what I said a while ago? If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, you know what it is? That's it. Step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics. 
and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. And I don't want to hear of any one of you going into a restaurant now and treating our waitress like she was dirt. You are the publicity agents for Alcoholics Anonymous. Did you know that? And because it's a program of attraction, you must now treat your fellow man as you would expect the treatment from him. Whether he gives it to you or not is not important. You will not lose your life because you're struggling for 18 feet of real estate in a car you can only own for a second. To practice these principles in all your affairs, kindness, courtesy, and consideration, what is so hard about that? You are the front of Alcoholics Anonymous. And how many times have we given our whole organization a black eye because of the stupidity of some few of our members who treat everyone like they were dirt? When God had a message he wanted to carry it on the face of this earth, he looked around to see who could carry it for him better than anyone else. And he found a group of people over in the Middle East who were the most stiff-necked, self-willed people he could find at that time. And he gave them the commandment of carrying the message of one God throughout the world. It was a tribe of Israel. And in spite of all the shame, humiliation, and degradation that have been heaped up on their shoulders over these many centuries, they have carried that message so well that there are only two fundamental religions in the world today who do not fully subscribe to the one God theory. And they are changing. I won't live to see it, but they'll come around. You mark my word. They'll come around. One God. And before any of you say, oh, it's God as we understand, I want to point something out to you. Please don't say it to me because all you're saying is I ain't read chapter 11 where it says united under one God. Many ways to worship. Many ways to get out of it if you want to. But one God. One God. When Christ was born, I knew he was born to carry a spiritual message. I also knew the Ten Commandments were physical law. When you take a moral inventory, what you're going to do is find out how you violated the Ten Commandments. You think you're going to do any more, you're kidding yourself. I told you about three of them, a liar, a cheat, and a thief. Thou shalt not belt false witness. And you will find out how you violated these Ten Commandments. And that's enough to get you off the hook, but it's not enough to give you a job yet. I knew Christ was born to carry a spiritual message, but for heaven's sakes, I couldn't find it. I looked and looked and looked, and it was never there. So I patterned my life after the golden rule, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for as you do unto them, so it will be done unto you. And it worked extremely well. And it is common to every religious tenet I've ever read. Every one of them has that in there in some way, in some form. It's there. Christianity, Buddhism, all of them. It's all there. And then I made a mistake. I got into an argument with a woman. I know better than to argue with women. Even when you win, you lose. But I did it. I do it anyway. I, it was about the Bible, and I was going to look something up and show her what it was. Proved her it was in it. And I found that spiritual commandment. When Christ was asked what is the greatest of all the commandments, he said there are two. To love your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he had given us the spiritual commandment of love. For he said, therein is all of the prophets and the law. That's the whole damn thing. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. And for the first 300 years after his death, this message was carried extremely well by today what's known as the first century Christians, who are the basis, really, of the Oxford groups, which is the basis, really, of Alcoholics Anonymous, as we know it today. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. To help those who can't help themselves, to learn to help themselves. Don't do for them what they will not do, but help them what they cannot do. And it worked extremely well. 
for about 300 years. And then Constantine became emperor of Rome. And he sanctioned the church. And he got himself a blue flag and painted a white cross on it and put a little Latin expression on it and said, Hop Signal Vinci. And this find out shall conquer and went off on a holy war. And the churches were formed. And cash flow became important. And the message became dormant. For 1,600 years, that message just lay there. Nobody doing much about it. Some did occasionally, but not many. And once again, God had a message he wanted to carry. And once again, he looked around this earth to see who would carry this message of love for him better than anyone else. And one more time, he found a group of people who were the most stiff-necked, hard-headed, self-willed, egocentric, bull-headed bunch of people he could find any place in the world called alcoholics. And this time in a blinding flash of light, he made a deal with one of them. He said, Bill, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll carry the message of love throughout the world, you will never drink again. And for 52 years, Alcoholics Anonymous has carried this message of love one drunk to another so well that we have risen from two to almost two million sober people in this world today. And you will carry that message in a world full of hate, and it will take every bit of the determination that you have mustered over these years to do it. God has put you through the fire, the furnace of affliction, and chosen you us, to carry his message of love. You will carry it, or you will drink. It's that simple. And how many times have you heard someone say what I'm going to say right now? You love me when I could not love myself. You have taught me how to love you. And for that, I am extremely grateful. Thank you all very much.